Well, the Capital Region has gotten a little Hollywood love this fall. Actor and comedian Nick Offerman was awestruck by Thatcher Park during a CBS News interview this week. Holy cow. <laughs> we don't have this in Illinois. Comedians Chelsea Handler and Joe Coy proclaimed their love for Albany on Instagram last month. The palace. We love Albany! And a post-apocalyptic version of the city skyline made a cameo on a recent episode of The Walking Dead World Beyond. Was our beginning. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. As much as she was perhaps responsible for some of what went on in Nexium, that she too may also have been a victim. We'll get the latest on investigations into sexual harassment allegations against former Governor Andrew Cuomo. It's sort of a breakthrough moment in the case. And resettlement organizations in the Capital Region are concerned that there won't be enough housing for refugees expected to arrive this year. It's been really difficult for the resettlement organizations to prepare and find a quality, affordable place for those refugees to live. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here this week with managing editor for news, Susan Mahalik. She's going to take us through the top headlines of the week. Let's start with, um, unfortunately, a mass shooting in Albany that occurred last week. We have some updates on that story. Can you tell us what happened? What's going on there? Yeah, sure, Jess. Um, Unfortunately, uh, there was a a terrible incident in Albany on Saturday night um, in which one man was killed and six people were injured outside of an Albany uh, social club located on North Lake Avenue. The man who was killed, his name is Alexander Bolton. He was 29 years old and he is from New Bedford, Mass., but he had grown up for a time in Albany and was in the area visiting his father and apparently was out with friends. And uh, they were at this club called The Lounge. Apparently there was a lot of gunfire that erupted. And later that evening, apparently um, folks at Albany Med called police to say that six men between the ages of 25 and 42 later came to the emergency room and had gunshot wounds. And uh, it was all connected to the same incident. And we've since heard that there was a lot of uh, gunfire in that incident. A lot of bullets were recovered. They still don't know who um, was responsible for the shooting, but 10 people uh, subsequently have been arrested on weapons possession charges. Um, And apparently there were folks that were at the club on Saturday. And when the police arrived, they were still there and They were charged and apparently uh, two loaded nine millimeter handguns were recovered. The club uh, maintains that uh, it was operating legally and the city of Albany uh, says that's not the case. So there's a battle going on about whether or not this uh, this club, which apparently is a private social club, 
whether or not it should be allowed to operate. And apparently, you know, we've heard that that this group that was there um, had rented out the uh, premises. So um, there's a lot more coming out of that story. And, um, you know, look for it uh, on timesunion.com. Exactly. It's definitely not the type of thing you want to see in the headlines, but we will be following it because it is a very important story. But I want to move on to some Nexium news, uh, some letters that were written on behalf of former Nexium prefect Nancy Salzman were unsealed by a judge. Uh, and we learned some interesting things about her uh, involvement in Nexium. So can you kind of take us through what came out of those letters? Yeah. So, you know, we had sought these letters earlier, but they were under seal and um, the judge decided to release them. And these are letters that were written on behalf of Nancy Salzman prior to her sentencing, um, you know, character witnesses and people explaining why they felt that she should um, have a more lenient sentence. She was sentenced uh, last month to three and a half years um, for her her role um, as the president of Nexium and the Executive Success Program. And she also uh, had to pay a fine of $150,000. And she's also going to serve three years of uh, supervised release But at any rate, um, these letters indicate that even though she was so high up in the organization and was and what many people think of as Keith Ranieri's, you know, right hand person, she also was subjected to rather poor treatment, you know, by him. You know, she uh, people basically describe her as being a, a victim as well, you know, and and at her sentencing, you know, Nexium victims talked about her as being, you know, fiercely loyal and an enabler and and an enforcer for Keith Ranieri. But these letters show another side and depict her as somebody who was unsettled and jittery in Ranieri's presence and that he belittled her and, and, you know, made her do, you know, stuff that just is, you know, nutty, like he would make her stay up late at night and, and then, you know, require that she be up early in the morning to serve him breakfast and he would send send things back because they weren't what you know to his specifications and he demeaned her for for drinking coffee and you know ridiculous things but it showed how he was basically treating her the way that an abusive person would it shows a a different side that she as much as she was perhaps responsible for some of what went on in nexium that she too may also have been a victim. Certainly, we have we have not. This is the first time we've really gotten an inside look at Nancy Salzman's experience in Nexium. She's always kind of remained a nebulous figure, um, so it's been fascinating. But you can uh, hear more about this and other other stories involved in the Nexium saga in our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Susan, one more topic here, and this is a positive one: uh, the Canadian border is going to reopen. Can you tell us more? Yes. So the uh, U.S. land borders, both um, with Canada and Mexico, are supposed to reopen to vaccinated people um, in early 
November. We're waiting to hear more, but we know that there are folks who, for our purposes, that live close to the Canadian border and like to be able to go back and forth for whether it's trips to Montreal or whatever it is they choose, you know, they have been denied that that opportunity um, for a long time. And from the capital region, we know a lot of people love to go up to Montreal because it feels like a very European city. And if you've been vaccinated, supposedly we're going to be able to go across the border in the coming weeks. And for some people, it can't be soon enough. Exciting news for many, I'm sure. Haven't been to Montreal in a long time. All right, Susan, thank you so much. We will check back in with you another time for more headlines. Thank you, Jess. As always, you can read more about all of the stories and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. And now let's take a look at some news out of our Capitol Bureau in Albany. New evidence has come to light in the ongoing investigations into former Governor Andrew Cuomo's alleged sexual misconduct. I exactly remember looking down, seeing his hand, which is a large hand, thinking to myself, oh my God. Executive Chamber staffer Brittany Camisso has accused the former governor of groping her at the governor's mansion last year. This is her speaking during a joint Times Union and CBS News exclusive interview in early August. It was the right thing to do. The governor needs to be held accountable. Cuomo continues to say he never touched Ms. Camisso and that the incident she described never occurred. This week, however, Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons broke the story that subpoenaed documents show Ms. Camisso was at the executive mansion around the time she claims she was groped. I talked to him to find out more about this development. I feel like this should be, you know, I should set this up like it's a a television show and start with, uh, you know, somebody in a big announcer voice saying previously on Cuomo land mm-hmm. or to that effect. But previously, uh, where we last left off, Brittany Camisso had claimed that the former governor groped her at the executive mansion last year, but she couldn't recall the exact date. Since then, several investigations by law enforcement and lawmakers have actually come up with receipts for her whereabouts. So let's start there. Tell me what's new with this story. As you know, when Ms. Camisso made these allegations uh, earlier this year, she, she did so without going public. She had confided to co-workers about an incident that she had said took place at the mansion sometime late last year. When we learned about this, we after it was reported within the governor's office, we learned about it and we began reporting stories on it. Subsequently, the Times Union interviewed her multiple times throughout the year, uh, each time getting a more detailed story, a more detailed account. The one thing that hadn't changed was that she could not pinpoint the day that she had gone to the mansion when she said this occurred. She said it was a day when it was only her and the governor and mansion staff members. There were not other chamber officials there. No one who's aligned with the governor or works closely with the governor. It was just her. The problem began when the attorney general's office, which had interviewed her as part of their investigation into the sexual harassment allegations against the governor, they had learned from her that there was another day when she was at the mansion, she said, when she had been there and done other business. And that business included 
texting something, I believe it was a copy of his driver's license or someone on the executive staff. They needed it. And so she said it was sometime around then. But the problem was that the attorney general's office in their report pinned that as the date of the incident, even though in a footnote they noted she could not remember the exact date. Cuomo and his attorney have seized on that error and had said that it can't be corroborated or it doesn't corroborate her story because they, they had no record of Ms. Camiso being there at the mansion on any other day in November. Cuomo continues to flat out deny any of Camiso's of accusations. He right? does. He said he's, he has essentially said that she's lying and making it up. That began a problem with the, the governor's office attacking her credibility on the basis that she, she may not have been there in November. When Brittany Camisso met with sheriff's investigators in early August of this year, after her attorney had you know, directed her to file a complaint with police, she had said to them that there were some things that occurred that day that she could remember. One was that the governor had trouble texting a note from his phone to Stephanie Benton, his director of operations. Brittany Camisso said she had sent a text with a note attached uh, from the governor's phone for him, and then she followed that up immediately with a phone call using his phone to call Ms. Benton to confirm that she received the text. In addition, when she left the mansion, she went outside, sat in her car for a bit, and then she returned to the Capitol. According to sources we spoke with, we learned that subpoenas both by law enforcement officials and as well as the, the Assembly's Judiciary Committee have returned information that supports all of those things occurring on a day just after November, in early December, that took place. And the one thing that buttresses at least the timeline for Brittany Camisso is that had there been no confirmation of that sequence of events occurring, the text message followed by the phone call from the governor's phone, which how else would she know about it? That could have been devastating to her. That could have been, well, we cannot find any electronic record that shows you being at the mansion and these things occurring. But instead now, they have electronic records that at least support the timeline of her visit to the mansion. So it's sort of a breakthrough moment in the case. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, it it is. Because on the flip side, had we been told that subpoenas of Stephanie Benton's mobile phones of the governor's phone potentially and of swipe card records for people entering the Capitol did not show any days in November or December 2020 when Camissa was at the mansion or that these phones had you know been used in that manner, then it would have called into question the veracity of her statement that she was there alone with the governor. And she has not wavered on that. She has said from the beginning, you know, she's the one encouraging law enforcement, get a subpoena and the records will show the day exactly what I was when I was there. She said she couldn't remember the exact day. Have you spoken to her or her lawyer since this has come to light? Not yet. Her attorney, Brian Primo, has always said since the, the first time I met with Brian and, and Brittany Camisso in March, I believe it was in early March, he has always said that she has maintained it happened sometime in November or December, but she could not 
remember the date. And when the attorney general's office put it in their report and also made statements at their press conference that it occurred on November 16th, he was understandably upset about that. He asked them to walk that back, which they have refused to do. They have instead pointed to their footnote that says, but she can't remember the exact date. So now the governor, former governor Andrew Cuomo, obviously resigned in August, not too long actually after we spoke to Brittany Camisso um, as part of a joint interview with CBS News. How many investigations are going on? What is Cuomo facing ultimately if if these don't pan out in his favor? Well, for the governor, it's about clearing his name. He and his lawyer are working feverishly to try to convince the Assembly Judiciary Committee when they issue their report that they want them to include information that they say raises questions about the motives and also the inconsistencies of some of the women's accounts against the governor. So that report is expected sometime possibly in October. But the governor does face potential criminal charges, right? Yes, but very, very low level. So could he be charged with harassment? He could be charged with sexual misconduct or or forcible touching. But this would also mean that you would now have an alleged victim of, of, you know, of a sexual assault who is going to be going into city court in the city of Albany for a what would probably be a bench trial in which the governor is the defendant and she's the complainant. If there is not enough to convict the governor of that, of course, then he will say I'm innocent and I've been vindicated. But it's also many times it's questionable why I guess she had gone to the police because sometimes victims often don't want to go that route. They seek civil recourse or seek an apology and admission. But with a criminal case, they can become re-victimized because now as she testifies, she gets cross-examined. There might be questions about her divorce proceedings right now and those sorts of things. So it can be, that can be a slippery slope. So you have parallel investigations ongoing of that by the Albany County Sheriff's Department and separately by the district attorney's office which is conducting what I believe is a grand jury investigation. doesn't mean a grand jury is impaneled. It just means that they're using grand jury subpoenas to gather evidence in the case. Well, I guess we can say for certain then that this is far from over at this point, that we will be following it closely. So at the same time that this is all unfolding, obviously we have a new administration uh, in Albany, in the Red Room there. Governor Kathy Hochul is facing a whole host of issues herself, as well as, um, you know, some things on the legislative agenda. So can you just give us kind of a quick summary of uh, what's going on at the Capitol and in Albany? Yeah, one of the most compelling news items that's been unfolding over the past couple of weeks is the vaccination mandate. So Governor Cuomo had directed this vaccine mandate for initially for limited number of healthcare workers in, in certain settings, and then it became expanded over time, and it became soon pretty much all healthcare workers who are in patient settings, patient treatment settings. When Governor Hochul came in, she not only embraced that directive, but has even strengthened it and made it more difficult, for instance, for somebody to seek a religious exemption. Some of the people are arguing in court challenges that because uh, fetal stem cell tissue is used to research and develop vaccines including the COVID-19 vaccines, that it goes against their religious beliefs to to have that put in their arm. 
Mm-hmm. So the state has said, and the governor has said that it, they're not valid arguments. She disputes them. She has even invoked her own faith and religious beliefs in terms of supporting the vaccine and crediting God with with uh, helping the researchers and scientists develop these vaccines. But what what occurred recently is that a federal judge in Utica has issued a temporary restraining order that was sought by the attorneys for 17 medical professionals who challenged the constitutionality and whether or not this was a violation of these people's civil rights. And that the granting of that injunction, that was sort of a devastating blow to Governor Hochul, in part because what the legal argument is that you're allowing people who say is an, a nurse or a doctor or an anesthesiologist to practice medicine in patient care settings without being vaccinated if they have a legitimate medical exemption. They're not offering that same accommodation for someone who seeks a religious exemption. You know, that's really the crux of the legal argument. If you can do it for one, why can't you do it for another? So they face a uh, a very serious court fight on this now at the federal level. And there's other court challenges too. You have court officials in the New York state court system at least six different labor unions that are challenging the vaccine mandate for those uh, employees as well. You also have groups say they don't that represent uh, hospital security officers who are also bringing legal challenges to the vaccine mandate. Well, interesting. We'll stay tuned for that. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me and we'll check back in with you again soon. You bet. Thank you. For more news on state government and politics, head over to our Capital Confidential section at timesunion.com. After the break, refugees fleeing Taliban rule in Afghanistan are making a new home in the region. We'll hear more about how local organizations are helping to settle them in. I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The city of Albany is expecting the arrival of about 400 refugees this year. That's in addition to more than 100 Afghan refugees who have fled to Albany from the Taliban. In the last two decades, a number of local organizations have stepped in to help refugees settle into their new homes here. But they say the quick and unpredictable influx and the pandemic have exacerbated some of the challenges that they regularly face in helping the newcomers, particularly when it comes to finding housing. Reporter Masara Makati recently wrote about the situation, and I caught up with her to find out more. 
what happens when they get here? I mean, how are they integrated into the community? Who helps them? The first refugee resettlement organization that the newly arriving refugees may contact with is the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, USCRI. They have a chapter based out of Albany here, and it'll start with them picking up the refugees from the airport. And after that, USCRI will set up apartments. Um, We'll usually find apartments for the refugees They can provide aid, um, which is supported by federal funding, to the refugees for the first few months of the refugees' arrival to the U.S., but then after those first few months, the refugees are on their own. So during those first few months, your CRI will set them up with apartments, they'll set them up with furniture, they'll set up doctor's appointments and the schools for the kids and uh, you know, things like that. So for example, USCRI even has an Amazon wish list for people if they want to not just donate money through their website, they can go to the Amazon wish list and buy the exact items that the newly arriving refugees need for their homes. Now there are a number of other you know, agencies locally that help out as well. Can you go through some of those? Yes, definitely. We have RISE, which is the Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of a Mouse, and they're a nonprofit organization. And I would say RISE and then also the West Hill Refugee Welcome Center are the two nonprofit organizations that tend to pick up where USCRI has to drop off with refugee and immigrant support. RISE has been around for quite a number of years now, and they provide a lot of after-school programs for kids, uh, English as a new language classes, citizenship test classes. They also provide transportation for a lot of the refugees, but then also just a lot of support, right? Like emotional and mental support. They help them when they have to deal with the Department of Social Services or when they have to deal with, you know, health issues or whatever it may be. RISE is always there for pretty much everything. They're a catch-all. The uh, West Hill Refugee Welcome Center, that organization I would I would classify as more focused on helping refugee families in their living situation. Here's a place for you to live. Here are ways for us to help you furnish your home and make sure that you, you know, have a good living situation. It seems like a great thing that we do have organizations in this area that are able to, you know, to provide these services. But as you wrote in your article, there are some issues, particularly this year coming out of the pandemic, some very serious issues that those organizations are concerned about, as well as the refugees or who are coming here. So can you tell us sort of what's going on there? Yeah, so we have an influx of refugees who are arriving to Albany, and a lot of them are coming with very short notice. Uh, You know, like USCRI will get a two-day heads up maybe, hey, you have this family of five or ten that's going to be arriving The issue with that becomes housing. So in general, there is a shortage of quality, affordable housing in the city, in the state, in the nation, and it's always been there. That has been exacerbated. The group is probably experiencing firsthand, right, what low-income residents in Albany and what communities in color in Albany 
have been experiencing for decades. So Rebecca Gerard, who is a legislative director and she's a housing advocate with Citizen Action of New York, something that she highlighted is that a lot of landlords aren't feeling very generous right now because they have lost out on revenue during the pandemic because of a pause on rental payments and eviction moratoriums. And so even though they're supposed to be getting back that revenue, that lost revenue through federally funded emergency rental assistance, there's still that lack of patience and wanting to to get higher paying tenants in their houses. And now that we are starting to receive refugees and we're not getting much of a heads up for when those refugees are arriving, it's been really difficult for the resettlement organizations to prepare and find a quality, affordable place for those refugees to live. Even though the people who accept GSS process, the houses are poor, poor, poor environment. They're not in good condition. So Francis Ngabo, he's the operations director at RISE, and he spoke with me pretty in-depth about how uh, Section 8 vouchers and Department of Social Services support also can be an obstacle for refugees who are trying to find that quality, affordable housing. Essentially, DSS support for housing is pretty much, very much, I should say, on the low end. So for example, one person seeking DSS support will get $350 for housing, he said. And for two people, it's only $575. So it doesn't even double for two people. And when you have landlords who you know, have potential tenants who are coming to them and saying, I have this DSS funding, well, the amount of money that DSS provides them is, is on the very, very low end of what rental payments could look like. And a lot of landlords will decide, you know what, I want to pass on this and go for someone who can pay me the full rate for, you know, the apartment that I'm trying to rent out. The other issue becomes that even if you do find a landlord who will accept DSS or Section 8 vouchers, that housing condition can be really horrible sometimes because not all buildings are kept up very well and not all buildings are regulated and there's not always code enforcement happening in all of these buildings. So it's just been a really big challenge to find a place for these refugees to live. And it has resulted in some refugees just needing to stay in, you know, motels until an apartment does open up and they're looking for other creative solutions. Like, does anyone have an in-law apartment with a separate private entrance and a lock that they can offer up for a refugee family? Airbnb has a nonprofit arm. So they're looking into Airbnb to see if there are any, you know, Airbnb homes that are available for uh, newly arriving refugees. So it's just been a lot of um, trying to find creative solutions to a really big problem. I'm, I guess I'm wondering, I want to characterize, if possible, the refugee population in, say, the city of Albany or the larger capital region. I mean, who who has come here? I know we we're getting folks from Afghanistan, but what other communities uh, and cultures have come here as a result yeah. of, you know, fleeing their countries and settling here? Definitely. So the first major wave of refugees that Albany, that Albany received was refugees from Burma. So all the different ethnic groups in Burma that were um, discriminated against, oppressed, and, and, and murdered through genocide by the government there. Burma is also known as uh, Myanmar. 
the folks from Burma or Myanmar came in the early 2000s. And we still receive them to this day, uh, but not to the same degree. That was definitely the first huge wave of refugees we started receiving. We've also received a lot from um, the Ukraine, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We've received a lot of special immigrant visa applicants um, from Iraq and from Afghanistan. And of course, we also have Syrian refugees. Did you get any sense from any of the folks who are involved in the organizations that are prepared to assist uh, refugees that are coming in, specifically the influx of, you know, refugees from Afghanistan, you know, just sort of looking forward into the next couple of weeks and months? Do they have any insight there about, you know, how it's how it's all going to pan out? Yeah, so we've already started receiving the refugees from Afghanistan. We're expecting to resettle a little more than 100 refugees from Afghanistan in the Albany area. So it's just trying to figure out, again, like, where are we going to put them, right? Where are they going to live? And how are we going to find ways to support them as much as possible, not just financially, but also making sure that they can be sufficient self-sufficient and that they can be well integrated into the new community that they'll be living in. Okay, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Susan Mahalik, Brendan Lyons, and Masara Makati for their contribution to this episode. <laughs>